Please turn to John chapter 13 this morning. John chapter 13. While you're turning there, let me uh, uh, share greetings to you from the folks in Monterey, Mexico. I had the privilege of being down there Monday through Friday to uh, preach for a spiritual emphasis in the university, as well as uh, meet with, I preach in the church and then meet with folks uh, that were a helping partner to train and did some staff uh, training stuff. It was a great time with them. And the Bixby's send their greetings as well as uh, the the leadership uh, there at the ministry, uh, Pastor Luis and, uh, and uh, Brother Omar, they send it. They were here last December. So some of you that may remember that, they were here in the service and shared the work that's going on as well. Please continue to pray for them. Uh, that God will bless the work that's happening there. It's just an exciting, excellent ministry. So we've been looking at Christ-likeness. The mission of our church, we exist to honor God by making him maturing disciples who together are becoming like Jesus Christ. And this particular slice of looking at Christ-likeness is that we should live like Jesus. 1 John 2.6 says, if we say that we abide in him, then we ought to walk even as he walked. That is, live or conduct ourselves in the same way that he did. And since the Apostle John wrote that in 1 John chapter 2, I've been taking us into the Gospel of John to see how that same Apostle recorded how Jesus lived. So John says we should live like Jesus lived, and he wrote a Gospel to show us how Jesus lived. And we've looked at two things so far. First, his aim uh, was that he he sought to honor his father by doing the father's will John 17:4 it says that i have glorified you upon the earth having accomplished the work which you gave me to do so the son glorified the father by doing the work that the father gave him to do in fact it was his very food he said in John chapter 4 and verse 34 and it was the thing that was going to sustain him even through the very difficult task of dying on the cross. And that's probably a gross understatement to call it a difficult task. It was something that caused him to be greatly disturbed. And yet he wouldn't ask, uh, he wanted the Father to be glorified in the midst of it. And last we looked at really the, the chief affection of Jesus' heart was his love for his father. He actually went to the cross so that the world would know that he loved the father. So, so if we're going to have affections that are inclined in the way that Jesus were, then we too would have a love for God that's demonstrated through our obedience to him. And Jesus actually commanded that of us. If you love me, keep my commandments. So, so when we think about genuine biblical love, it is always evidenced through obedience to God. It's, it's controlled by what matters to God. And, and that shouldn't surprise us because our love, if it's really, uh, if it's really centered on God, then what matters to God would be of most importance to us. Right? It, it, it's somewhat backward to define our love for something by ourselves. The object of our love should actually control our love. So it's, it's not surprising that Jesus would say, if you love me, then keep my commandments. 
just like he said, I abide in my father's love by doing all that he commanded. We somehow like to to separate those in our culture and turn love into just sort of like a romantic feeling kind of thing. And, and we distort it because we ultimately make our love about us. It's how we feel. It's what pleases us. It's what makes us happy. And the minute it stops pleasing us, making us happy, we can, we can actually exchange it. Well, I, I don't know, any longer love that. I, I love something else. Because we're actually defining the satisfaction of love in self-centered terms instead of the, the recipient of the love. We love God, so we live our lives for what he wants rather than actually defining it by what we want. And, and that actually starts to come to its fullness in the passage we're going to look at today because it was demonstrated in the life of Jesus in a very specific, a specific way, which he then calls on us to imitate. I'd like to read a lengthy passage of scripture. We're not going to look at it all this morning, but I want to summarize part of it and then look into the other part of it. So John chapter 13, I'd like to begin reading in verse one, please. John 13, one. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from God and was going to get back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'd like us to look at the verses in this this whole section. The first part just being a quick reminder of what Jesus is teaching in the lesson about spiritual cleansing in verses 1 through 11. Uh, He is showing the apostles 
that the cleansing that they need for their daily walk with the Lord is a continual thing. Peter, being Peter, clearly isn't content with what Jesus is just doing. If this is something important, then he wants it all. He wants more of it. And Jesus then says to him, you don't need that because you've already had the overall cleaning done. That's his reference to if you've bathed. But what you do need is your feet wash. And so as Jesus teaches these things, he's, he's really laying out uh, some, some principles, both about salvation and sanctification, which I would try to summarize just real quickly for us in this way. The spiritual cleansing comes from Christ. Therefore, it's a matter of grace. It's not something we do for ourselves. It's actually something that he does for us. He had done the cleaning that he describes as bathing, right? He had washed them, chapter 15 says, through the word. They had come to be his disciples. They had been given a relationship with God by which they were accepted by God. And so that was something done by Christ. And that was something that was permanent and complete. Yet when it comes to their daily continuing cleansing, because that didn't make them sinless, there still was a need for a kinds of cleansing that comes through the work of Christ as well. John will refer to that in the book of 1 John when he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And you know what the next part of the verse says? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a kind of cleansing that has to do with our fellowship with God and our walk with the Lord, and that's what's being represented in the foot washing. And that's still the work of God to do that. Uh, And and just to make sure um, what I'm saying from the contrast, right? I don't cleanse myself in terms of salvation through works that I do. It's not by works of righteousness that I have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. It's Christ who cleanses us. We don't cleanse ourselves. And when I sin, I don't clean myself up by penance, right? Because there's lots of systems like that. You sin Now, here are these works of penance that you need to do to sort of rectify your problem. That's not a biblical pattern at all. Cleansing comes from Christ, and it comes on the basis of his promise, and it's us going to him for that promise, which which presupposes that we are repentant about our sin, right? I mean, why would I ask for cleansing from a sin that I've not repented of? I mean, that would be a non-confession. So I see my sin as it is, and I see my only hope in Christ, and so I call on him for my cleansing, confessing my sin, and he does it. It's his gracious work in me. All right, so so our, our salvation and our sanctification are the work of Christ to deal with our sin. And genuine disciples of Christ, I think Jesus is teaching, Genuine disciples of Christ will see the need for and submit to that continual cleansing. That's his whole point of confrontation with Peter. Peter's like, you know, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. But it's not really at that point about dirty feet and clean feet. It's about 
the, 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 the message that Jesus is trying to communicate and Christ's followers will regularly recognize their need for the washing that comes through Christ and will, will submit to and seek that. Right? God's people are sin confessing people. The, the way of Christ doesn't cause us to ignore sin or care less about sin, but is actually to become serious about our sin and want to have cleansing in our lives, want to have forgiveness in our lives, because it's really about our walk with the Lord and fellowship with him. If he is light, then we want to walk in the light. We, we, want, to, we want to draw near to him so he will draw near to us, if I use the language of James, and you know what James ties that to, right? He says, so cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Weep and mourn, right? If we really want God to be near us, then we want to be free from sin. I mean, you can't really love your sin and, and be loving God at the same time. They're, they're actually opposed to one another. So Jesus is teaching his followers about what it means to follow him. And that is to have not only received the forgiveness of your sins and been brought into relationship with Christ by grace, but also to seek to cultivate and maintain the closeness of that by dealing regularly with our sins. But Jesus is also after something deeper about their service for Christ. And that's what he begins to unpack for them beginning in verse 12 through 17. And this is, this is where I'd like to direct our attention uh, for this morning. Because Jesus is going to teach them a very, very important lesson about service. Notice verses 12 through 15 is the example of Jesus. He uses his own example as the backdrop for teaching them this lesson. And I think two things that are very important for us to, to see in this is really in, uh, in, in great form of contrast. On one hand is who does it, and that's Jesus. He's the greatest. That's stated pretty plainly, right, in verse 14, where he, he says, I, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. So Jesus doesn't shy away from the fact that he actually is the one who's above them, that, that he is teacher and Lord, and they're right to call him that because that's what he is. So he, he is actually the greatest among them. That's the one side of the contrast. The other side is the activity that he engages in in washing their feet, which is the lowest act of service, right? And, and those two are, are set right alongside each other to make the point. He is the greatest, but he is engaging in the lowest act of service, that he's willing to humble himself to engage in a menial, lowly task on their behalf. And, and that's the example laid out, which is not the only time this example is used by Jesus. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 20 uh, about their, their debating about who's going to be the greatest. And, and Jesus confronts them and says, it is not this way among you. 
But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now take again and think about what the first part of the chapter sets up for us. This is the night of his betrayal, the night before his crucifixion. That's, that's what the first part is. Like he knows his end is coming. Satan has entered into Judas to do the betrayal. Uh, we know from the other gospels that the conversation that the disciples are having still is about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, so Jesus is going to face death in a few hours. He's going to face a horrific, uh, pressure and confrontation in his battle with evil and offering himself as a sacrifice. And they're sitting around talking about who's going to have the biggest throne. And, and in the midst of that, Jesus sees what's going on and he moves to, to, to wrap himself in a towel and wash their feet to serve them, to show them that the greatest among them could do the lowliest of tasks, right? That's, that's the example he sets for them, and he does it uh, because he wants to help them. Verse 1 we'll come back to, but he says he wanted to love them to the end. So what he's doing is a display of love for them, both in the action but also in the instruction that he's going to give. Notice in verses 14 and 15, Jesus gives a command. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's leaving an obligation on them. You ought to. And then verse 15, he says, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. All right, so it's pretty clear Jesus is saying there's something that needs to be done by his disciples. Now this... um this is this has opened up a debate, you know, uh, through through church history about whether or not foot washing is being established as an ordinance of the church. Right. So we usually talk about in a Baptist church two ordinances: baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the reason we talk about them is because we're commanded to do them. Right. That's it's an ordinance. You know, you, you, we know the word ordinance. Uh, if you're supposed to keep your property in a certain way because there are ordinances that, that have that obligation on you. And, and you clearly see in, in uh, Matthew chapter 28, for instance, that baptism is instituted as an ordinance. God says, this is to be done. And we know from the end of the gospels that he says about the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. So, so we talk about those as ordinances. But we also uh, tend to define the ordinances with two other factors. One is that they're a symbol of saving truth, right? So baptism is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ symbolized in immersion in water. And the bread and the cup, are, are Jesus identifies as symbols of his body and blood. So they represent saving truth for us. And then uh, the practice of the early church in carrying it out. You read the book of Acts, and clearly they understood that these were things that were to be done and practiced by the church. 
when people professed faith in Christ, they baptized them. And, and when the missionaries went out on behalf of Christ to proclaim the gospel, they turned to Christ, they baptized them. And then they gathered them into assemblies. And when they came together, they would observe the Lord's Supper. So, so that's what you'd have to sort of put as the test for foot washing. And I think, uh, I think that's, so that's three tests. And I think it passes one. Jesus commands us to do it. I think it falls short in a second one because the foot washing that Jesus is doing here is not actually a symbol of saving truth. Right? He's not, he's not saying this is the basis of your salvation. This is, this is something that pictures your salvation. Remember, he actually distinguished it from it in the text. Peter says, wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't need to be washed all. You've been washed all. So what he's doing isn't about saving them. Right? So it falls short on the picture, but it also falls short on the practice equation. Uh, and probably one of the easiest ways to see that is in, in the book of 1 Timothy, when Paul is giving qualifications for widows who would be counted on the widow's list. One of the qualifications was that she had washed the saint's feet. All right, so now think about this. If this was an ordinance of the church that happened whenever the church gathered and the church always did it, then how would that distinguish a widow from another widow? Right? That'd be like saying, if she's taken the Lord's Supper or if she's been baptized. Well, every believer in the church that professed faith had been baptized. And if the church wasn't gathering to take the Lord's Supper, they wouldn't be considered a part of the church. So this must be something past that that was an act of service by a Christian woman to care for the, the, the timely needs of people in a way of showing hospitality, right? It's, it's, it, it's something that's probably a little foreign to us because we all wear, well, most of us wear shoes. We all wear something, right? We, we, we live in cultures that cover our feet, so we're not, and we're not walking down dusty roads we're not picking up all of that. And then when we come into somebody's house, what we tend to do, some of us tend to do, some impose it as a ordinance and some take it as a preference, right? We take our shoes off because we don't want to track in from outside what's come into the house. Well, in their culture, that was all on their feet, right? They had been walking in sandals in dirty, dusty roads and they'd come into somebody's house and it was customary as an expression of care for them to provide either something for them to wash their feet or to have someone wash their feet. There's a great illustration of this in the Gospels when Jesus sits down at a home with a bunch of self-righteous people. Remember the woman who comes in, begins to weep and wash his feet with her hair, and they're scandalized by it. And Jesus goes, when I came into your home, you did nothing for my feet, right? He says to the householder, you've provided nothing for me to wash my feet, yet this woman's done it with her tears, right? Now, now, don't think about the woman and the tears. Think about the fact that Jesus was saying, you didn't do anything to provide for this, which would have been sort of a standard customary kind of thing, 
right? So it's a different cultural context for us. So what Jesus is doing here, I believe, is not commanding the concrete expression of foot washing, but the principled action of serving in lowly ways to meet the needs of other people. Look down to verse 17, because we'll, we'll unpack the whole verse, but notice the word that's used, words that are used at the beginning. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them, right? And I think there's at least a window there to show us that Jesus may be talking specifically about foot washing, but he's actually talking principally about larger than that, right? These things, do them. You might expect it to be, so if you know this, you will be blessed if you do this, right? But he goes from this to these things and do them because he's talking about something larger than just the specific act of foot washing. So I would think it's fair to say that most of the church of Jesus Christ has not treated foot washing as an ordinance. They've seen what Jesus is doing here is establishing a principle and a teaching about how his followers should Follow his example in engaging in humble, lowly service for one another. Because that's, that's really the point of it. If you look, if you look at, um, uh, verse 15, you should do as I did to you. It's, it's a one another kind of thing that he's after. All right. So, so really what you're finding in verse 16 then is an expression by Jesus of what the mindset both of the Lord and of his followers should be. Notice verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant or a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So what's, what's Jesus' point about this? Well, if I'm your master and you're my servant, you're not greater than me. If I'm the one who sent you and you're the one who sent, you're not greater than me. So if I am willing to do this, then certainly you must be willing to do this. If I will take up the towel and serve others in a way that, that humbles me, right? I'm taking the position, though I'm the master, I'm taking the position of servant. Then if you actually are the servant, what, what would keep you from doing that? Right? What would, what would prevent you from pursuing that? I think uh, it would be good for us to, to, to meditate on what Jesus is saying here and perhaps meditate by going, so, so what tasks are beneath me when it comes to serving others? Where, where do I draw the line? And yeah, yeah, I'll serve, I'll serve, but there's a line I'm not going past. Right, because that, that's beneath me. I'm not going to do that. Who 
is beneath you that's not worthy of your service. If Jesus would grab the towel and wash the feet of his disciples, and in fact wash their feet in order to break up a debate about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Right? Because these guys weren't going, oh, we're so worthy of you washing our feet right now. They actually needed his his commitment to serving them to help bring them back from positions of pride to positions of service. So, So if the greatest can stoop to the lowest for those he loves, then those who accept him as his master and are sent by him should as well adopt that stance and and take that step of service. And then look at verse 17, because here's the promise that Jesus makes connected to this. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So there's a promise of a reward, blessing from God but it is conditioned on the obedience if you do them. The pathway to this blessing is the pathway of humble service. And it's not just enough to know this principle, right? You know these things. Do them. There's a blessing, right? God has promised that to them. So, so what Jesus lovingly shows them is that humble service by his followers is the pathway to blessing. Right? That, that humble service by the followers of Jesus is the pathway to blessing because actually humble service is the pathway that Jesus took to the place of his exaltation. Right? Philippians chapter 2. He became obedient even to the point of death on the cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So Jesus became obedient as a servant to the point of death, and that led to the Father's exaltation. So what Jesus did, he illustrates for them, and then he teaches them. Right? This is the way of blessing for God. It's the path of humble service. It's the path of following my example because I'm the master and you're the servant. You're not greater than me. So you need to walk the same path. You need to follow the path that I have followed. And here's the, the challenge for us. Uh, I think... Right, I think it's always been a challenge for sinners, and we are all sinners. Okay, just hate to break the news to you directly, but we're all sinners, and at the center of sin is selfishness. Second Corinthians five says that before we come to Christ, we live for ourselves. Right, so so we actually have a self self referential interpretation of everything. And, and the way of following Christ is that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us. And here's, here's what Jesus says living for him looks like. Right? It actually means we live out 
obedience to the two chief commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor. Right? Those two are the anchor points of what it means to genuinely have a heart for God that's translated into a life that is pleasing to him. So so our mindset, if we're going to be Christ-like and live like Jesus, has to be right that we are not too high to serve, and there is no task too low if we're called upon to serve. Right? And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let that hang in the air for a moment. Because you are being discipled 166 hours a week with the very opposite. The, the, the very mindset of our culture is you are better than that. You deserve better than that. You are worth more than that. Not we're not too high. We follow a servant, and we are servants. And that you shouldn't lower yourself to do that. And we're called to take up the towel and serve. This world is going just the opposite direction of the way of Christ. Right? And, and we need to see that what, what, what this passage is doing is connecting Christ's example and service and our service. We actually honor him by imitating his life. That's Christ's likeness. We want to be like Christ. So we honor him through the imitation of his service. We do what he did. And in fact, we honor him by the sacrifices that that calls on us to make. Right? Because it's actually when, when we have to serve in lowly ways and we have to actually lay down our rights and lay down our comfort and, and potentially even lay down our own lives to serve, that we actually are showing how much Jesus means to us. We're saying Christ is so important to us that we will actually follow him in ways that don't come naturally to us. Right? No one would have expected Jesus to grab a towel and wash their feet. In fact, they were somewhat scandalized by it. But Jesus cared enough about them to do that for their good. And that means many times our service will actually be in ways that don't fit within the comfort of our wheelhouse. We're actually having to step outside of what's comfortable and convenient because we want to follow Jesus, imitation of him, and we want to show Jesus how much he means to us, that we're ready to let goods and kindred go. Right? We're willing to lay down our lives because Jesus matters that much to us. And, and that's the path of service and sacrifice for him.
And, and this is, uh, again, I think we're so brainwashed by the, the world around us, the culture around us, that, that it's really quite possible that some of us in this room might be saying right now, well, it's really not possible to live like that. I mean, yeah, Jesus could do it, but I mean, he's the son of God. I can't live like that. But do you think that's a good theological assessment of what's going on here? I mean, do you think Jesus is actually lying to us when he says, what you've seen me do, you do? Right? Because if, if you actually can't do this and Jesus just commanded you to do it, that, that's a problem with our understanding of who Jesus is, isn't it? Wouldn't it be better to come to the conclusion that a world that tells you you can't live like that is actually wrong? Because Jesus said you could. And if your choice is between whether Jesus is right or some self-help guru is right, who are you going to take? Um, who, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Jesus? Or are you going to believe the pop psychologist who tells you that your first duty is to yourself and to self-care? Who are you going to believe? Right? Jesus actually shows us how we can do this. Because the first way in which we would be able to do it is belief, faith. Look at verse 17 again. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. That, that, when God makes a promise to us, that is calling from us faith. Right? Cause here's, here's the challenge. I step into a fork in the road and, and my choice is preserve myself or serve somebody else. And the only way I'm going to fight against my natural self-preservation and natural self-centeredness is if I believe the promise of God that the best thing for me, the best thing for me is to not do what comes naturally, but to come from obedience to him. If you know these things and do them, you are blessed. So I stand at that fork in the road and I say, which am I going to believe? The potential lies that I'm telling myself or the promise of God that blessing comes through trusting him to serve like Jesus. Right? It's an issue of faith. But also go back up to verse 1 because it's an issue of love. What motivated Jesus to do this? Look at the end of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you know why Jesus grabbed the towel? I would suggest you it wasn't really because their feet were dirty. It was because he wanted them to understand some important spiritual truth. And the only way he could get that into their heart 
was to embody the truth that he was going to teach them, which meant he was doing it because he loved them, right? He knew what was in, be- in their best interest. So he was motivated more by what was in the best interest of these men that he loved than what would be uh, really, I mean, on a, on a on a simple plane, what would be in his best interest? Because, because here's, um, I mean, to recast this, right? Recast this into your world, and and you're about to face some enormous, horrific deal. Let's. I mean, let's. I'm gonna. I'm. This is coming right from the top of my head. Okay, so so work with me a little bit. And I'm not saying it, I know sometimes you can say these things and, and can, can seem un, unkind in it. But let's say it's the night before you're going to have massive cancer surgery. And your family's all gathered around for a meal. And you're facing horrific pain and uncertainty and difficulty. And they're all sitting around the table, ignoring you and arguing about things that matter to them. What would be the script going through your head at that point? What would you be telling yourself? Probably thinking, what's wrong with you idiots? I mean, don't you care about me? I mean, I'm the one who's going to be facing this problem. I've been telling you exactly what's coming. You, you don't, I mean, you don't even care that I'm about to face the most dark, horrific moment of my life. And you're arguing about stupid stuff. And here's the thing I'd say to you. In our culture, you would be actually patted on the back for thinking that they are wrong. You would be able to lick your wounds and go, well, yeah, 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 sure, I was mad at them or I was angry, but I mean, I had every right to be. Because we have been weaned on self-centeredness. And here's Jesus going, I'm, I don't know what, obviously, here's what I think he's thinking. Because this falls in the chapters that he's preparing them for his departure so that they won't be overwhelmed and overcome by it. He's looking at them and going, if these guys are still fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, they are going to be destroyed by the devil. Because you know who shows up in this chapter? The devil. And Jesus is thinking, if they don't start to change their perspective from wanting to be served to serving, they will never get the job done. So he's going, I need to turn and, and teach them even though it would be great if they had all of a sudden spontaneously come around me and started to pray for me, 
to speak encouragement and truth to me. Would that have been great? Yes, that would have been awesome. And if you're ever at the table with someone who's in that situation, stop arguing about stupidity and minister to them. Yes, do that. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about what was the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus was to look at them and see what they needed and move to serve them. Instead of sitting there thinking, why didn't they serve me? Why didn't they do what I needed? Why didn't they do what I wanted? It was Jesus looked out toward them. And he did so because he too believed the promise of his father. Right? He, he walked by faith. He trusted God about the joy that was set before him. So he despised the shame, endured the cross, right? He trusted in the father who raises people from the dead. He lived believing the promises that his father had given to him. And he lived controlled by his love for them and had that move out. So it had a vertical and horizontal reality. And, and it's just a lie to say that it's not possible for a believer to live like this. But it, I mean, if you think about it, right, is the world's answer, are the world's answers working any better for our culture? I mean, really is, is putting Self at the center rather than God and others at the center? Is that actually producing less anxiety, less burnout, less tension, less problems in human living? Are people actually flourishing under the advice of modern self-care? I don't see any evidence of it. We have a more neurotic culture. We have a more drugged up culture. We have a more conflict-filled culture. We have homes that fray and fragment faster than generations before us. All while we've been prescribing the answer to all of these things is you look out for yourself. I mean, is it possible that the very remedy that they're prescribing is the disease? And it's not helping. It creates unrealistic and unmet expectations. Right? You, you are expecting from sinners some kind of godlike satisfaction for your soul. And no other sinner can actually provide that for you. The only ultimate balm for your soul is going to come through Christ. If you hook your happiness on other humans, then your, hu your happiness is always going to be on a yo-yo going up and down because other humans are not going to live in a way that never fails around you. There's only one who will never fail you. And you need to hook your happiness and heart's contentment to him. And, and I think what it does is ends up crushing people under its misguided solutions, right? It turns them away from blessing. 
Here's Jesus says the blessing is through service and they're actually giving you a solution that is actually uh, wiring you away from sacrificial service. Right? It's, it's, it's backward in that regard because it creates a cult of self where the highest duty is to preserve yourself in that regard. And I think we've got to see that. Now, let me just say this quick because I, I don't want you to, I, I don't want you to think I'm saying go kill yourself in service. All right. So here's, and this is helpful for me. Okay. So maybe like I'm just weird and it's helpful for me. How many of you have ever flown an airplane? Okay. Most of you have. Uh, if you've only flown once, you probably listen to the flight attendants when they give you their little spiel. Like at this point, it's like wah, 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 wah for me. But somewhere in their spiel, they say, if the cabin should lose pressure, an oxygen mask will drop from the ceiling. And you know what they say? Put yours on first before you try to help somebody else. Well, wait a minute. That's selfish. No, it's actually not. Because you know why you're putting your oxygen mask on? So that you'll actually be able to help other people. Right? You're of no help passing out. So put yours on and then help the person next to you. That's the point of it. Right? I'm, I'm cool with that. Because you know why you're helping yourself at that point? You're helping yourself so that you can help other people. You're not helping yourself. It's not like cabin loses pressure, oxygen mask drops, put yours on, open up a can of Coke, right? Adjust your seat to where you want it to be. Breakfast will be by shortly, then help somebody else. No, it's actually a temporary, necessary, like Jesus saying to his disciples, come apart and rest for a while. I'm not denying that at all. What I'm saying, though, is even in that, the focus is still outward. You need to rest so you can serve better. Not because rest is the goal, right? The goal of your life isn't to actually produce the maximum amount of rest and recreation for yourself. It's actually to get some rest and recreation so you can return to the task of serving. Because life is about serving God and others. It's actually the whole point of it. So, so don't let the world twist it around so that now the thing that is a means, rest, becomes the end or the goal. Because the goal is to serve, to love like Christ loved. And I think we've got to go to battle with the me first mindset that drives our world because we are so infected with consumerism that it is virtually the air that we breathe. We ask ourselves about any kind of a commitment. Do I like this? Does this make me happy? Is this what I want to do? Is this satisfying to me? And we carry it over to everything. Instead of us actually having as the driving focus of our heart, 
how we are using our lives for the glory of God and the good of other people, we are actually measuring every opportunity by what's in it for me. Is this what I like to do? Is this something that is pleasing to me? What about me? And that's not the pattern in the following of Christ. I remember when, when our boys were young, it was so... I'm not, I'm not saying you should do all of what we did, but we, we worked them hard. We gave them, uh, they worked and made money, but then they carried responsibilities because of that, because we actually wanted to teach them that money comes in and goes out, right? And, and so, you know, they would do their paper out, they'd get paid, uh, they would have certain commitments for savings and for giving. Then they had certain discretionary income that was theirs. But here's the part where we split with a lot of parents, right? When it came to youth group, youth group activity, you know who paid for it? They paid for it. It was out of their discretionary money. And I can remember having a conversation with one of my sons going, I really don't want to go. I mean, I don't want to do that. They had a youth group activity that was like some activity that he didn't want to do. And, and, and dad's saying, you're going and you're paying for it. Right? And so, you know, it was a good teaching time interaction. But here was the lesson that was below the lesson. If they're in the youth group, they should be committed to the youth group. Not think the youth group exists for their entertainment. And if there's something they like to do, they'll go do it. And if it's not something they like to do, they, don't, they won't go do it. Because I wanted them to realize that someday they're going to be adult members of the church. And they shouldn't be looking at the church going, well, are they doing something I like to do today? I'll go do that. But I don't like to do that, so I'm not going to go do that as if the church was just a consumer choice for them instead of a commitment by them to a body of believers of which they're a part, that their whole stance toward the body of Christ shouldn't be, what will it do for me, but what am I doing for it? How am I serving Jesus and loving my brothers and sisters in Christ? And I used that as the illustration because I knew I could get you all to listen when I was talking about the youth group. But I really wasn't talking about the youth group. I'm talking about us. Right? Do we, do we choose our commitment to worship, our commitment to service, our commitment to participation based on what we want to do? What makes me happy? What satisfies my desires? Or is it because we're committed to what matters to Jesus? He loves his bride. He laid down his life for her. He cares about her. So I ought to pour out my life for her good. I ought to be committed to the thing that Jesus is committed to and not take the things of God and reduce them to consumer products. And we see that throughout the New Testament, right? Gathering to worship is not about self-satisfaction, but about mutual edification. 
If you want to see that unpacked, read 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. Right? It's not about self-gratification. It's about mutual edification. It's not about the parts of the body. It's about the whole body. Handling conflict and disagreements among God's people, Jesus lays out the pattern for us, and then it's taught that we should let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, that we should pursue things which make for peace. Paul even goes so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 6 that you would be better to be defrauded, right? You lose something that you have a right to than to take that issue before the pagans. I mean, that that's radically counter our world because there are Christians ready to sue each other much, much more frequently than one would expect given what Jesus teaches about that. Because it's not about me, it's about the testimony of Christ. In any kind of conflict, the thing is peace in the body is more important than, than my particular concern or agenda, right? That's the path that Jesus is talking about here. It's what leads to the sacrificial generosity that we find in the book of Acts and 2 Corinthians, where they gladly shared what they had for the good of their brothers and sisters in Christ, and in fact, lived under the promise of Jesus that it is more blessed to give than to receive. That was Jesus' word. There's more blessing in giving than receiving. And so they were motivated by that. They were going to pursue a path of giving and generosity. I think it's even what motivates us in the confrontation of sin. We pursue restoration rather than punishment or writing people off, Galatians 6. We remain faithful in that even when it gets tiring to do it. The advance of the gospel rides forward on people foregoing rights and privileges and putting other people's needs ahead of themselves. What Jesus teaches here in John 13 mushrooms into what we see in the book of Acts and the pastoral and, and the, the, the letters to the churches. Because it's a life of radical commitment to Christ likeness, which says, I am not the standard for deciding these things. The standard is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, right? That it's a vertical check. Is this, is this lined up with the love that God calls for me to have in obedience to his word? Then there's a horizontal check. Is this about love for others? Right? Is this going to show love to them? Is this going to build them up? Is this going to pursue peace between us? Because it's not my duty to look out for number one. If I have the number one on. My call is to love the Lord God and love my neighbor. And here's what I'm saying to you. Is when you look at Jesus... That's what you see. You see the perfect demonstration of that. And because he perfectly demonstrated it, he provided for us the salvation that we need 
because we cannot perfectly do it. Right? I sin and fall short of the glory of God. Christ never did. So my anchor is not in my perfect obedience. My anchor is in his perfect obedience. That Christ's righteousness is my answer. Christ's obedience is my hope. But because he's loved me like that, I want to offer him the best of my love to him. And he's told me how I should live. And that's radically contradictory to what you're being told at least six out of seven days a week. And since you're only here for part of the seventh, my guess is you're getting told that six and a half days a week. The world is shaping your heart to love yourself more than anything else. And, and that even shows up by our privileging all the things that make us happy. And if we only serve where it makes us happy, we're carrying that right into the church. Right? And the thing that should make us different is we're serving where the glory of God is advanced and the good of his people is built up. Because it's not about the servant. It's about the master. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for your son and his obedience. And the privilege it is to know him because of your grace. Thank you that our hope is not built in our righteousness, but in his. Please help us to think carefully about this. I know in many ways this, uh, this can almost sound so radical that it can't be right. But help us to step back from it and wonder if it sounds radical, not because it's false but because we live in a world that peddles falsehoods. We have been discipled since birth in a culture that tells us the world revolves around us. That the thing that matters most is us. The thing that, that will make us most happy is the thing that's most important. The thing that fulfills our desires is the best thing the right thing. And Lord, help us to, to submit ourselves to the searchlight of your word because the standard for what we do and where we go, what we wear, how we serve, none of those things are anchored in ourselves. They're anchored in these two commitments to love you and to love our neighbor. And so help us to think carefully about it so that we follow the path of our Savior, which also is the path to your blessing on our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.